entered into a world of, oh, fuck, Barry, I forgot the Twilight Zone intro. But anyway, it's Breaking Kayfabe with Bowser and or Barry sometimes. Episode 277 on this particular episode. Barry Rose and I will be talking about the life of Jamin Pugh, Jay Briscoe, who we lost tragically recently to a car accident. We are wishing the best to his family. Uh, as a tribute to Jay and his brother, our match of the week this week, Barry Rose, Briscoes versus FTR, Dog Collar, December 10th, 2022, final battle, Ring of Honor. Holy shit, Barry, what a match this was. Was, was this a lot of fun? And I'll tell you what, it's, I think the cool thing about this is the kind of match that bridges the generations of wrestling fans together. Because if you're an old school fan going back to the 60s, 70s, or 80s, maybe you're going, I don't like the new shit. I don't like current wrestling. Or maybe you're a new fan. This match is, to me, reminiscent of of these really intense matches from the territory days. I think everybody could love this movie. Or the match. Hasn't yeah, been made, match. Hasn't been match. made into a movie yet, Barry. It has not. You're right. But, but anyway, it will be. Yeah. yeah. So, well, that's your fuck up. I will admit that uh, in the <laughs> yeah. segment that we previously recorded, I mispronounced his first name. It is Jamin. And, and I apologize. I, uh, I think I called him something else. And I, I really apologize for that. Besides that, in this wrestling intrinsic episode, I will tell you that I came across an article recently on the top 201 wrestlers of all time. And it's something that is going to be primarily featured on our Patreon account. Barry, did you know we have a Patreon account? We we do? Wait a I, minute. There are some people apparently uh, in our brothership that are unaware of that. Let's do the math on this one, Jeff. Yeah. So how many members in the in the brothership? Last I checked, we were up to, uh, oh, I want to say something like 2,200, something 2, like that. 2,200. So Because I know how many are, are currently subscribed to the Patreon. So let me do the math. Do we have anybody, uh, any people that were at the last fan fest that assured us that they were going to be subscribing that may or may not have subscribed yet? I believe there were a couple of people, one being a gigantic Cars fan, if I'm correct. Well, I'm not going to mention any names. All Let right. the good times roll. Uh, oh. Anyway, so we're going to be as a little teaser. I see what you did there. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate that. Uh, a little uh, a little tease for you people to get you to check out our Patreon account and Patreon channel. We are going to be starting the list with number 201, taking it to number 190. And then if you want to hear our thoughts on the rest of the list, well, fucking A, you got to subscribe to the Patreon channel. So besides that, we're going to be doing a little Florida man or not. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things. But I tell you what, why don't we start off and let's uh, let's talk a little top 201 wrestlers of all time. Barry Rose, the other day, I took a look at an article that was written, I believe, by Carl Stern. Uh, Carl is a, uh, a, a person that puts a lot of content out for the Wrestling Observer, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so Carl came up with what had to be a project that involved a lot of time, a lot of thought. So now, based on the fact that eh, we're just a couple guys here doing a, a stupid podcast, that we're, we're going to sit there and be critical of Carl and his list of the Absolutely. top 201 wrestlers of all time, Barry Rose. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I just got to be careful. Carl, if I'm correct, uh, was an, and he's an ex-professional wrestler, and I believe he was 
a Lord humongous at some point, meaning he's probably very tall and muscular. So uh, could could completely just rip me in half. So I need to be careful as I start to eviscerate this list. So you uh, are saying if you got into it with Carl, you would not use your vast shooting skills? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. See how fast I could run. Exactly. Now, included to this, before we start the list, uh, he came up with 201 names. I will say that Barry and I uh, had noted that uh, I don't believe there are any women on this list. What? Uh, so, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Also, Carl, adding the addendum to every little uh, piece he's written here on uh, The Wrestlers, eh, he's got about a paragraph for each guy, uh, whether or not they are a member of one of Barry's uh, favorite things, of course, the old Hall of Fame in wrestling, uh, in this case, the <laughs> Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So we will make a notation after each name as to whether or not this wrestler is in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. I'm sure there are some of you out there going, oh, cool, let's check it out. And there's some of you going, oh, fucking Dave Meltzer. Uh, Dave Meltzer is paid for by the AA. Anyway, so we're just going to use Dave as a uh, guidebook here. So starting off at number 201, Get your seatbelts on, folks. This uh, has a chance to be a rather long uh, particular segment, so uh, I'm guessing it's going to go more than one of our uh, our episodes. Number 201, Barry. It is Hiroshi Tenzan from Japan. What say you? Not a member of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Tenzan was I, – I, I thought Tenzan was good, but I – don't know if I was looking at the top 201 of all time that Tenzan would have made the list. I, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't if, if I was writing this list. So I will say that I believe Tenzan, I uh, haven't seen a lot of his work. I have seen some of it. He was a guy that sort of was given the main event rub when uh, Japanese wrestling was in a period where it was kind of down. Uh, you know, this was uh, before New Japan had really begun to reemerge. All Japan was going through a, a lot of different, uh, here's the one of Barry Rose's favorite words, Michigas uh, going on there. Uh, I always like to use the Yiddish expressions, Barry. Uh, we all so appreciate that too. Thank you. Uh, but he is a four time IWGP champion. Okay. Uh, he has a record 12 times was the IWGP tag team champion. Uh, he's also a former NWA champion, but that was in 2005. Let's be honest. It really had kind of stopped meaning stuff uh, at that point. And, Barry, this is a really important thing. In 2005, he placed number 10 in the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Top 500. Well, automatically, that means he should be included. What say you, Barry? Yeah, I mean, that 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 right there makes it a very strong case. But I, I don't think I, – I just – every time – I like Tenzan. I just don't know if he ever hit that next level for me. And in my head, I'm thinking I can probably come up with 200 easy that I would put above him. However, if you're looking at his resume, as you just stated what his resume was, that is fairly impressive. So now here's a guy at number 200, Barry, as we continue moving along here. Initially, I could be proven wrong here, but my first thought when I saw this guy's name was, eh, this guy should be higher. Barry, at number 200, not in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, by the way, it's the ace, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. Yeah, he definitely deserves, in my opinion, to be in the top 200. Not in the Observer Hall of Fame. What would be the logic in not putting him in the Hall of Fame? I would love to hear it. Orton Jr., I want to say 72, he had his first match. He actually lost his first match to a guy named George McCreary in Florida. And George McCreary was a guy that almost never got a win. Of course, he actually got a win this time, which was uh, really unusual. But it took him about a year to a year and a half. And by uh, 1974, Orton was having 
really amazing matches. The flaw with Orton at that time, he had two flaws. One was he had a speech impediment. And he couldn't cut a promo. There was a lot of stuttering involved with it. The other thing was he was as skinny as could be. So he didn't always look credible because you had a guy that was, what, 6'2", but looked like he's about 170 pounds. However, by 1976, Orton had put on a little bit of weight, not a lot. His vocal ability was a little bit better, but he was so well regarded. And I'll share this story is that, Jack Briscoe, who was the Florida heavyweight champion, this was ex-NWA world's champion Jack Briscoe, when the world title really meant something, went to the promoters in Florida and Eddie Graham and said, I want to lose the title to to Bob Jr. This kid's got all the talent in the world. And Briscoe actually put him over for the title. So let me ask you, because uh, I'll be honest, I'm going to tell the listeners, we are looking at this list blind. I don't know who number 199 is, okay? I, I will say I do know who number one is. But considering that Bob Orton Jr. is at number 200 on this list, Barry Rose, tell me, give me a list from one to three, Bob Orton Jr., Bob Orton Sr., or Randy. How would you list them? It's, you know, and everything because you're looking at, uh, you know, there, it, what we look for now, we didn't look for 30 years ago, vice versa. That's fair. So if I was, and again, you're looking, somebody who has seen all three. <sighs> shit, that's really tough because I want to discount Randy, right? That's the first thing I want to do. But how do you fault the success that he's had? Here's a guy that's, that can cut a promo when he's capable of good matches, et cetera. How about I'll give you my favorite? Cause I, I can't do the, uh, I'll say it was Bob Jr., Bob Sr., and Randy in that order. Yeah. And you know, honestly, there's no right or wrong answer. There's not. So, yeah. yeah. So it's just an opinion. Uh, I will say, uh, according to this article here, uh, that Bob Orton Jr. found his greatest success as the bodyguard for Roddy Piper uh, during the uh, the original WrestleMania. Well, and that isn't fair, though. Because well, no, no, that's just according his... to the article. I didn't right, say that was what, the truth. But uh, it's not. And he didn't find his greatest success, per se. This was what occurred on the on the biggest stage. True. I mean, he had great success in, in almost every territory that he went to. Mid-Atlantic, this guy was a force to be reckoned with. And there was a, a territory that was loaded from top to bottom with the best wrestling in the country. Knoxville, not even counting ICW, Florida, Georgia, tag team champion with Dick Slater. In the AWA, he kind of faltered a bit. And I always found that very interesting because on paper, it seems like Gordon Jr. would have been the perfect fit for the AWA as well. So, you know, one of the things that I think is is pretty amazing, you know, you talked about the run that Bob had in Florida uh, as a tag team wrestler with guys like Bob Roop and others. And to think that someone with this much talent who, let's be honest, had a lot of runs in a lot of different territories at one point, had to go, and I'm going to phrase it this way, had to go work for ICW, you know, which, let's be honest, although the it was a great sort of uh, under-the-radar promotion, I'm sure not everybody was was making, as they say, bank there, Barry, you know, like you would in Florida or Mid-Atlantic or up in New York, and that he had to go work there for a while, uh, you know, whether it was because of the whole Knoxville thing or what, but he was just a supreme talent, and a my first initial thought when I uh, was scrolling down and I see Bob Orton Jr. at number 
200 was, this is way too low for this guy. I mean, do I think he's top five of all time? No, but you're talking about a guy that not only worked every territory, this guy was a, a big deal in Japan. He had a, a nice run in Japan for new, for new Japan pro wrestling. This guy was a big deal for a long time. And I just think as Barry, uh, you know, very eloquently pointed out, he definitely should be a little bit higher than number 200. Number 199, Barry, we are being well-rounded here and getting into the luchadors. Psychosis, what do you think? I always thought psychosis going back, and I, I don't know if I saw a lot of his Mexican stuff uh, coming out of the country of Mexico, but I saw a lot of his WCW stuff, and I don't know if that's fair. With it, I thought the guy really was good. I thought he was a great hand in the ring. I don't remember ever. I was thinking he was probably one of the better luchadors as well. I don't know if I'm because I have I really didn't follow his career in Mexico deeply. Maybe I'm not qualified to judge it. But again, I go back and I say, you know, I can come up with 200 guys easy. Is psychosis better than those guys? That I don't know. Well, you know, I will say that the guy definitely had his moment in time when he was like a, a really big deal. You know, whether right. it was in Mexico, he comp- uh, competed with Triple uh, A, with uh, CMLL, uh, with uh, the WWA. So, you know, this guy had a run and he had a great look. And, you know, he had uh, the, the series of matches with guys like Rey Mysterio Jr. And really was one of the guys that really established, along with Rey Mysterio Jr., really put over, you know, the whole Lucha Libre thing in this country and made it something that people had to tune in for, made it sort of must-watch TV when he was with WCW. Snap just agreeing with me there in the background. I heard that. Yeah, yeah so absolutely he has some very uh, very definite opinions on psychosis, Barry Rose. So, uh, so do you think he belongs in the top 200, though? I'll say no, but I – yeah, I'll just say no. Okay. And also not in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Now we're getting to number 198. Now this will be a controversial choice, not because of the fact that he was a very talented wrestler, which he was, but of course we have to, uh, you know, discuss outside the ring, uh, situations. Uh Number 198, the shooting star, literally and figuratively, Barry Rose, that was Art Bar. Yeah, that's, that's a good one right there. And Art Bar was a uh, tremendously, I guess, underrated or underappreciated worker. If he had not died at a very, what was he, 28 or something, right? He was a really young guy when he died. And uh, there were uh, some heavy allegations, which had a, essentially in this country, for the most part, ended his career. I know he was a big star in Mexico, I believe, at the time of his death. I don't know if Art Bar deserves to be in the top 200 greatest of all time however had art bar lived another five six ten years there is a great chance i would have said oh he absolutely does he was certainly the trajectory of the route he was on was going that way so you know i the ironic thing about Art was what caused him to basically lose his spot in WCW as Beetlejuice, uh, a character that was created essentially with the help of Roddy Piper out in Portland. He went and uh, sort of lost everything that uh, had been intended for him as this uh, character that would appeal to kids with WCW, uh, went back, basically restarted his career in Mexico with Eddie Guerrero, uh, just became a, an incredible star. 
uh, wrestling in Mexico with, uh, with Eddie. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here. Okay. That Art and Eddie were supposed to go to ECW that Paul had uh, basically made a deal with them to come to ECW. And then as fate would have it, Art is found, uh, dead, uh, in his, uh, in Portland. And Eddie ended up going to ECW, which enabled Eddie to eventually transition to WCW and then WWE, where he eventually became one of the world champions, stuff like that. A tremendous talent lost, uh, you know, as you said, at, at age 28. Did he uh, have I'm not even going to say his he certainly had his demons, maybe with uh, whether his alcohol or drug addictions. He also had his outside the ring activities uh, that got him in a lot of trouble. Uh, I will only say that uh, he's probably not the only guy in the history of the wrestling business to have uh, made errors in the particular uh, type of judgment that caused Art to be demonized by a lot of the wrestling fans. But unfortunately, Art was the guy that had just been signed to a national company that uh, was uh, made aware of his uh, indiscretions, shall we say, Barry. But Art was, uh, man, he was a hell of a talent inside the ring. I'll give him that. What say you? Oh, he absolutely was, too. And again, I think they would have been they would have been huge stars in ECW. And I think in some form, whether WCW would have tried to figure it out and brought him back or the WWE might have been a little more difficult. I, I think his future was on a national stage. You know, again, the allegations, I don't, I don't think he was ever convicted, right? Never served jail time, if I'm correct. Uh, and I don't remember all the details. Maybe he did, but I don't think so. But I think talent wise, this guy was capable of going to the very top. So, and you know, what's interesting is, uh, before we started recording, we were discussing, oh. <laughs> without mentioning any names, a former ECW standout, uh, main event type, uh, who was known for their ability to get heat with the ringside fans. That's right. And all I can say is, wow, Art Bar in that ECW arena, the way that he got heat with the fans in Mexico yeah. and yeah. the stuff that was thrown at him, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> not just beer, not just soda, other things uh, that were thrown at him and the heat that he got with the Mexican fans. Can you imagine Art Bar and all the way that he could, you know, the ways that he could manipulate a crowd as a heel that he had shown in Mexico being in front of those fans in Philadelphia? What an opportunity that was missed there, Barry. Yeah, it really was too. But again, you know, the allegations, I believe. No, no, no. I, you know, that's yeah, a, yeah. I understand, but it was a missed opportunity. Absolutely. The guy. Number 197, was, uh, Barry, is in fact, and here again, uh, when I first see this name, I'm thinking, wow, oh, this guy was a, a big deal for a long time. I'm surprised he's not, uh, you know, again, I'm not saying top 10, but price is not a little bit higher, you know, maybe 20, 30 spots higher. It is the Mormon giant, Don Leo Jonathan. What say you, Bear? I would say, so again, I never saw much of his work. All I've ever seen is, uh, some f footage I think I saw on YouTube and the guy was pretty damn good. He was, here was a guy and I don't know what his real height, six, six, something like that. You know, he was always, I think, positioned to be bigger and taller than he was, but here was a guy that was doing arm drags and drop kicks and was working like a guy 5'10", which back in those days to see a guy 6'6", six, six working like a guy 5'10", is really unique. What I've seen, he seems pretty incredible. I always wondered, could he have been a bigger star if he had wanted to? And what I, what I, you know, when I say that, he basically had slowed down by the seventies. I know the fifties and sixties, he was much bigger, but even in the seventies, he was, wasn't that old. He could have gone territory to territory and, but he didn't do it. 
So uh, I, I like him on this list, though. I, I think that's a pretty good positioning right there. So two questions. First of all, uh, based on uh, your knowledge of the history of uh, CWF, did Don Leo Jonathan ever appear in Florida? Did and uh, he was there, and I should give a shout out to Kevin Orcutt, who we seem to mention all the time. Kevin actually pointing it out to me that Don Leo Jonathan had worked there. It was brief. I want to say it was fifties. It was maybe a couple of weeks or a month, and then he was gone. But he did work Florida. And the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, very early in my uh, career as a wrestling fan, the headline story was the Battle of the Giants. I believe it took place in Montreal. Uh, he was one of Andre's first big opponents when Andre first came to the to uh, North America. I won't say the United States, but uh, yeah, Don Leo Jonathan was a he was a big deal for a long time, and no pun intended. Now here again, uh, Barry, n- number one ninety six. This is a guy, in my opinion, way too low. It's the Olympic strongman Ken Patera. What say you? So I think Ken Patera should probably be higher. And why do I say that? Because once Ken Patera. Because he's going to be at the CWF Legends Fan Fest. Yeah. And, <laughs> and if not, somebody will play this for him and he will call us out and fucking throw shit He'll at say, us. You cocksucking motherfucker. At yep. But Ken Patera was another guy that once he figured out what his future was in, in professional wrestling, which was as a heel, a cocky, arrogant heel, the second he became a heel, this guy was main event, was main eventing the rest of his career. And Ken was really good. And we talked about this recently on the regular show where I said Ken did not fit the mold of an NWA world's heavyweight champion with that would have been a great WWF world's heavyweight champion. And I could even say possibly even the AWA. But I think Ken Patera deserves to be on this list. I, and I like the positioning where he's at. I might, depending on some of the names that are coming up, even bump him up a little bit higher. So since I forgot to mention it, let me just backtrack real quickly before I discuss Ken Patera further. Art Barr, not in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, Don Leo Jonathan, yes, he is in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Ken Patera, not in in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, which, quite frankly, is a little bit of a surprise to me. Ken Patera was, uh, you know, I've mentioned on the show before, the guy that uh, had, I want to say, the Missouri title, and he was the Intercontinental title in the WWF, which is kind of a, I think he was the only guy to have a title in the NWA and the WWF at the same time. And uh, famously, as I've mentioned on the show before, when I asked him, you know, how was it you were able to do that? He says, because I was good. He did not have... uh at the top of the ladder, a, an extremely long run, but uh, because I think basically some injuries started catching up with him and he began to uh, lose, I don't want to say his ability, but uh, some of the stuff that made him great in the early part of his run, the, say, 76, I want to say like 76 to 82, 83 was right. the window when he was really on top. And then, of course, he had the the very uh, unfortunate situation in Wisconsin that uh, you know took him away for two years. When he came back, really not the same guy. A great character, though. It really, Barry. If you want to talk about all time great characters in pro wrestling, Ken Patera's got to be right up there because this guy I can tell you, I had him. We had him at one of the dinners, and he was absolutely a fucking riot. Very funny, great storyteller, great promo guy. Uh, and uh, just lots of fun. What do you think, Barry? One of the great characters? I think so. I, and I, I think we're talking about that uh, that heel, Ken Patera. He really was. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and as you said, when you get him in a private setting, he's even maybe even more outrageous. So, yeah. yeah. So, number 195, Barry, oh. now it is a guy that uh, recently was at a CWF Legends Fan Fest in beautiful downtown Metropolitan Lutz, Florida. It's Bill Eady, the Mask Superstar, Demolition Axe, and one of the Mongols, a great, great career of Bill Eady. What say you? Does he belong on this list? Should be much higher as well. So there, And there, not the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, by the way. Yeah, well, and that makes zero sense as well. There, There is literally no logic as to why he would be so low or not in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Great career on paper, whether it's a single or a tag, changed the gimmick four or five times, and all were successful. But then, shit that's not on paper, this guy was having fantastic matches. Yeah. So it wasn't that he was doing everything else right. You know, you could say superstar Billy Graham, right? And you would say, okay, had a great body superstar Billy Graham when nobody had a body like that, could cut a promo and had charisma, but his matches, he wasn't a great wrestler. There was zero flaw in the game of Bill Eady, and I think he even went above, he should be much higher. I would actually say Bill Eady is top, if not top 100, top 150. Yeah, he uh, and and by the way, just a a really nice guy. Uh, very, you know, we had him at, at in Lutz. He was a you know great storyteller, a real gentleman. Uh, it was a pleasure to be with, and a guy that one of the. La- I'm not. And by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna quantify this. I'm not talking about guys like uh you know um Kane, uh, that kind of mask guy. One of the last true great mask wrestlers. Uh, that were main eventing. You know, I remember his run in Georgia with the the Super Destroyer. It was Superstar and Super D. What a great underrated tag team they were. Uh, had a had runs all over the country as the masked superstar. Uh, just uh, always the intelligent interview. Gordon Sully used to always point out he was college educated. Uh, you know, and as a matter of fact, I think before he got into the business, am I correct, Barry? He was like a school teacher, wasn't he? I believe I, he's from West Virginia, and I want to say he was either a school teacher. He might, I think he was involved in physical education, but he's a very bright, articulate guy. And as you said, spend two minutes with him. You find that out. Yeah, and not in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, and neither is the guy at number 194. He is the guy that wrestlers used to always say, Outside the ring, I want the kind of life that Tito Santana has. Barry Rose, what say you? Tito Santana, 194. Great, great person. Uh, and I think people say that because he seems extremely grounded. He's been in a marriage for so many years. He's had a career. School teacher. Outside. School teacher. I think he was even a hairdresser. There was a rumor. Maybe that was a rumor. But school teacher for years. And really, nobody's ever going to say a bad word. And also a very good guest on our podcast going back about four years. I like Tito. If I'm judging Tito solely off of the success of his time in the WWE, I think you could make a case for top 200. If I'm taking his overall career into account, I don't know if he makes 200. I think this is a debatable one, though. I think it could easily go either way. I'm going to say no, but I could certainly see where somebody would say yes. I would say that Tito Santana was not a main event guy. But he's a guy that if you had him on a card, if you're a promoter and you put Tito Santana in the semi-main or middle of the card, he's going to always give you great effort. He's always going to connect with the fans to a certain degree. 
and you're never going to have a problem with the guy. He's a guy as a promoter, a booker that you would love to have on the card. Does he belong in the top 200 of all time? Mm, a case could be made, maybe not. But I'm not naive enough to not say that I could certainly see a case being made that he does belong on this. So I'm like you, Barry. It's a kind of a nah, depends on, you know, I could wake up tomorrow and say, oh, I'm going to pound the table. By God, this guy definitely belongs on the list. And then the day after that, I'm going, nah, well, maybe not. But like I said, if I'm a promoter, if I'm a booker in his heyday, Tito Santana on the card, absolute uh, rock solid guy uh, in a tag team situation. You know, this is a guy that had to have Ivan Putsky as his tag team partner for guys. <laughs> there you, know? you go. And, uh, you know, and then with uh, Rick Martell of Strike Force, uh, he was yeah. always a guy that was going to be a really, really solid guy. Was he a top of the card kind of guy, a, an electric guy that fans would flock to see? Maybe not, but, you know, a rock solid guy that, uh, you know, a case could certainly be made for. Now at number 193, not in the Hall of Fame which I'm sure there are going to be people out there that are going to be kind of outraged by that. Now, Barry, before I tell you who this is, a guy that I would say, maybe not for his in-ring work, but for his wrestling mind, his wrestling acumen, his wrestling characters that he came up with, I think you could make a case that Kevin Sullivan at 193 belongs in this list. What say you? Yeah, I would actually agree. And I I think everything you just said, we should say, too, Kevin had – a pretty decent run in WCW. Kevin is still relevant to this day, still showing up at, uh, at shows. I, he's doing mostly managing. He'll do a run in, but Kevin's career goes back. I want to say even to the, maybe the late sixties. God knows different names. You know, he started off really, I think he was 18 or 17 when he started. The impact that Kevin had in the state of Florida. And again, I'll always be biased if we're talking Florida, but. It was a game changer. You know, Florida was a dying territory for the most part. You could already see it. A lot of the top talent not making money was going somewhere else. And Kevin came in and kind of revitalized it. Yeah, you could say he also maybe ran it, he ran its course, but Kevin was always relevant. And here's the other thing. Kevin in the later part of his career became in some ways, as a wrestler, one-dimensional. wasn't doing a lot out there. It was almost the same. Kevin was actually a hell of a wrestler prior to the gimmick change. Uh, he could have great matches. He was good. I like Kevin Sullivan. And, and again, this is his in-ring work was great. His interviews were great. But his mind, his behind-the-scenes, whether it's the booking, coming up with angles, et cetera, whatever he was doing in the office – this is a guy that deserves to be on this list. I think top 200 easy, in my opinion. So here's one of the things uh, in the article that I think is pretty interesting. You mentioned right. uh, when he started. I think he started his career, you know, you're right, if not in the late 60s, maybe 70, 71. Yeah. Yet in 1981, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated voted him most improved wrestler, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it. Guy that had been in the business for like 10 years is the most improved wrestler. At least, yeah. Yeah. So here's a question I want to ask you. Based on, again, not on anything that you think. I'm just talking about this list. He's at 193. Behind him on the list is Ken Patera. Does Ken Patera belong on this list ahead of Kevin Sullivan? What do you think? I think that's an almost an equal comparison, though they were very different. I wouldn't put him ahead. And I only say that I think Kevin's contribution to wrestling 
is much deeper. And Patera had a pretty short run because Patera, when did he return as a baby face? Like 87? Uh, yeah, I was thinking like 86, 87, something like that. And it was over by then. Like yeah. that, that to me was over. So you're looking at Patera maybe 72 until he went to jail, which was what, maybe 84, 85 without having an exact date. So Ken Patera's career might have only lasted 12 or 13 years. Kevin Sullivan, he's like 52, 53 years and still out there. So again, while that may not be a good thing that he is, I, I wouldn't put Patera ahead of him. While Patera was a bigger name, in a shorter amount of time, though. Yeah, no, I was going to say the, the the window was much smaller for Patera, but during that window, he was, was a, he was a much bigger deal than Kevin Sullivan was. He was. Yeah. Uh, I hate to let all the, the Kevin Sullivan fans in uh, the state of Florida. Throw. Well, it's true, though, Jack. No, no, it's true, right? Well, you no, know, yeah. I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't able to finish. What I was going to say was you're absolutely right that Kevin had a longer window without question of being uh, somebody that was an important figure in the business. I will say I loved Kevin uh, during his time, like when he was in Georgia and they were doing like the Boston street fights and uh, him and Austin Idol were yes. uh, teaming and feuding with one another and stuff like that. That was great stuff. And then he went to Memphis. He was part of uh, Jimmy Hart's uh, first family. Uh, that was great stuff. There are people that to this day, Love the whole, uh, Buddha, you know, the, 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 the taskmaster, the games master, whatever, uh, gimmick in Florida. And, you know, like, uh, he's under the spell or whatever. Uh, he never said it was funny because, uh, a friend of the show, Michael Ahern, uh, who's one of our brother shippers posted on his own Facebook page about, uh, Kevin Sullivan uh, was famous for his devil gimmick in Florida. And I, I corrected him. I said, no, no. Kevin very clearly said he never yep. used the word <laughs> devil. He never used the word Satan. Okay. And, you know, so. He didn't uh, like it also. That was the other thing. It wasn't that he wasn't just using it. He actually did not like those terms. Yeah. And he was very clear. But you bring up a great point, And maybe that's the overriding factor on Kevin Sullivan's success. There were people, and I would say it was more of the smaller towns in Florida that were fully convinced what was taking place with Sullivan was a shoot. And they were calling the local TV stations and newspapers to get the devil worshiper off their television. There was an, an outcry. And that, to me, that's success right there. Yeah. No, and, you know, it, it speaks to the, the going back to the question about uh, Patera versus Sullivan. Uh, for the short window, Patera was uh, a much bigger deal, uh, not just in the territory system, but nationally. But Sullivan, without question, has the longer uh, – uh, lifespan not only as a wrestler as a personality as a behind the scenes guy and to be to be completely honest when patera came back you know from the the stint in prison uh he was uh not able to become nearly what he had become before the stint whether that was the fault of the promoter uh, or the booker or the it fault was. of Pat- or patera who knows yeah. uh, maybe patera his time was just over who knows but, you know, I, I think it's a, kind of an interesting argument to be made. Next, at 192, oh, boy, is Barry Rose going to say this guy should be higher. Barry Rose at number 192, it's the big cat, Ernie Ladd. I don't know what to even say. So I, <laughs> I, I legit don't know what to say. And the thing is, Carl Stern, who wrote this article, was in the business. 
I don't know if he ever saw, based off of where he lives, I don't think Ernie ever worked that territory. So my assumption is he's done deep research, which I think he has, because when you come up with all the uh, statistics on, like, like Tenzon, that's some pretty deep research, right? So I, I'm assuming he may have seen videotape. He may have seen uh, or heard some interviews. Having lived through the Ernie Ladd era, and having seen him multiple times, Ernie Ladd deserves to be in the top 100 and maybe even higher off of that. There was no flaw in his game. He had the respect of everyone he came in contact with, even the racist. And Ernie Ladd was a guy that, you know, he, he started in the mid-60s, I want to say 65, 66, working in the Deep South. You're talking he faced racism on a daily basis and he always handled it from my understanding with class and dignity at the same time he was never going to let anyone push him around he stood up for himself you've heard the story with the briscoe brothers that's out there and that wasn't based off of racism by the way so don't i'm not you know but there was no flaw in ernie lad's game and an intelligent man a guy who knew how to work successfully as both a baby face and a heel a guy who is, I think, one of the better promos back in the day, had the respect to Bill Watts. You know, it's that, that's not the easiest thing to do, right? Bill Watts respects you. You have fucking earned that respect. <laughs> like, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't happen by accident. Ernie Ladd deserves to be in the top 100 or higher. This is a grave oversight. So a couple things, uh, from the article that I want to mention, then I'll tell a story that I heard, uh, Echoing uh, some of the comments that Barry just made. Uh, retired in 1986, uh, Ernie Ladd was inducted to the uh, the Chargers of the NFL, now the L.A. Chargers, formerly San Diego Chargers. Uh, their Hall of Fame in 1981, he was inducted into the Grambling State University Hall of Fame in 1989, uh, the WWF Hall of Fame in 1995, and he is, in fact, a member of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So, uh, yeah, uh, a guy, uh, the story that I always remember about Ernie Ladd, and I want to say... I can't remember if this was in uh, New Orleans or in Houston. It was in one of the two cities. The AFL, I believe, was uh, having their end-of-the-season all-star game. And the players that were on Ernie's team uh, were told that the uh, the black players had to stay in a separate motel, and Ernie refused to participate in the game if that was the case. And the other players on Ernie's team uh, they backed him absolutely, saying this was completely outrageous. And uh, I want to say the game might have been postponed because of the stand that Ernie Ladd led for the black players that they should be included and allowed to stay in the same hotel as his teammates on uh, the AFL All-Star team. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that uh, Ernie Ladd is remembered uh, for besides all the other uh, stuff. You know, you know uh, Ernie Ladd was a guy, as, as Barry pointed out, was a guy that was making a stand back when uh, it was definitely not something that was a, a popular thing to do. Uh, and there were undoubtedly probably promoters that, you know, were of the mindset like, uh, do I really want to have a guy that's going to be a quote unquote rabble rouser or uh, a militant? You know, those guys were out there, Barry, uh, that may have said, oh, I don't want to use this guy because he's going to cause trouble in my locker room. But Ernie Ladd was a man of conviction. He believed in what he believed in, uh, stood up for, uh, not only for himself, but for other wrestlers, for other football players. And, uh, you know, it, like you said, if a man like Bill Watts, 
who I'm just going to put it out there has been known to have one or two controversial opinions on things gets to where he respects Ernie Ladd, not just a wrestler that he can make money off of, but Ernie Ladd, the man that says a lot, Barry. It really does too. And, uh, I'll, and, and Bill Watson, his autobiography, he talked about Ernie the Ladd. The Cowboy and the Cross. The Cowboy and the Cross, but there is a chapter in there where there was a wrestler and it was one of, it was either Don or Roy McClarity. And I, I don't want to defame the, the one who was innocent, but one of them made a, uh, used the uh, racial epithet towards Ernie Ladd. And I believe Ernie Ladd, uh, set him straight. If you know what I mean, I don't think much went down, but I'll give you a great example of Ernie Ladd's conviction. He was a very religious man, but it wasn't, uh, this was a 24 seven deal. So it's why you'll never hear a bad word about Ernie Ladd from anybody. He was the real deal. I called Ernie Ladd I, in the old kayfabe memories website, which I believe is owned by Arcadian Vanguard now. But going back 20 years ago, when it was the kayfabe memories message board before the days of Facebook and Instagram, they used to have the territories, and I used to write some of the articles on Florida for those territories. And I wrote one about the night that Ernie Ladd turned heel on Dusty Roads and the riot that almost happened, and it was a big deal. So I was lucky enough to get Ernie's phone number from someone, I forget who it was, and I reached out, and we had a conversation. I explained who I was, what I was writing about, and he said, I'll talk to you, young man, for this. And he talked with me for 25 minutes, and he stayed completely kayfabe the entire time. Now, at the time, I was probably like, fuck, because... That Dirty Roads. Did he call him Dirty Roads? I, I I think he did, actually. I think he was like, <laughs> Dirty Roads wasn't there for the tag. And I was like, well, Ernie, how long had this been planned out? And he goes, there was no planning on this. It just had. So I, you know, I was, exactly, I was that being worked. Fantastic. But I had such respect for him. And I had such respect for his conviction that I didn't challenge anything. And I never wound up using any of his quotes because they were like just pulled from like the wrestling program or the TV show. Like it was so in character. But, you know, in hindsight, I think at the time I was very frustrated by that. But in hindsight, especially after he passed, and I want to say he passed four or five years later, I want to say in 2007 is when he passed, if I'm remembering correctly, I was really bummed out. Ernie Ladd was, to me, the personification of a wrestling heel. He was the real deal. He could draw money. You know, other than his knees, I don't think there was a flaw in his game. And God, were those knees in bad shape. I loved Ernie Ladd. Deserves to be much higher. And of course, my, one of my favorite memories of Ernie Ladd. And, you know, again, I go back to when I first started uh, reading the wrestling magazines, the newsstand magazines. Uh, I think he early on in my fandom, he was teaming. I want to say with Baron Von Raschke. Yeah. Uh, in the in, WWA. Uh, yeah, yeah. Against, against Bruno and Dick the Bruiser. And, uh, it just looked like some terrific, uh, cowboy Bob Ellis, so, those kind of. So. This, this is always something that stuck out in my, uh, so I, and I'll share this only because it, it sometimes proves what an idiot I am if I don't prove it enough when every time I open up my mouth. Years ago, I bought the original Florida Tag Team Championship titles. They had been discovered in a barn, the attic of a barn in Georgia. My guess was Dusty had them. 
Dusty was living in Georgia, gave them to somebody or sold them, and they wound up at a barn. These were ugly titles. They weren't great. I wound up selling them. I bought them. I don't know. And I wound up selling them. I didn't make a huge profit. And I'm bummed by that. Around the same time, I had an opportunity for a very reasonable price of maybe fourteen or $1,500 to buy those same WWA tag titles. And the photo that was with the, the titles was of Ernie Ladd and Baron Von Raschke. And I didn't fucking buy them. That still to this day sticks in my craw. Yeah. So, but what I was going to say was besides the, uh, you know, the, the stuff with that, the other thing, uh, that popped in my memory about Ernie Ladd was, of course, the Barry, I know you remember this, the, the famous scene where, uh, it was on Georgia television and Ernie is being interviewed by Gordon Soley and he says to Gordon Soley, take it, Barry. What am I thinking of? Mr. TV announcer, Mr. TV announcer, whiskey. Yeah, (laughs) which he did. That was the irony. He was. Yeah, that was great. Ernie Ladd definitely belongs to be uh, higher on this list. He is a member of the Observer Hall of Fame, as I said. Uh, Next at number 191, higher than Ernie the Big Cat Ladd, Barry, is Koji Kanemoto. Okay, so (laughs) now I like Koji Kanemoto. He was never the guy in Japan, if I'm yeah. recalling correctly. He was always. Uh, let me just let me just uh, bump in here, Barry. He uh, was the winner of the Most Outstanding Wrestler Award in the Observer uh, voting in 1998. Uh, he was the very first New Japan IWGP World Junior Heavyweight Champion. Right. Uh, and he defended the title in 1995 at Starcade against Alex Wright, who does not belong on this list, by the way. No. But uh, so, you know, he had, he had a run. Wasn't he, uh, he was the masked guy too. Wasn't he Kanemoto? Wasn't he a masked guy? Uh, I'll have to, does not say. Oh, he was the, uh, the third wrestler to wear the tiger mask gimmick. Yeah. Tiger mask. He was tiger yeah. mask for a while, which was odd because his body type completely different than Sayama. Sayama a little shorter and squatter. Kanemoto was leaner and taller. So I thought that was very bizarre. He was a guy, but he was never the guy to carry the promotion. Never. He was having good matches. Don't get me wrong. There's absolutely no way he deserves to be higher than Ernie Ladd, Ken Patera, or Kevin Sullivan. And I would say maybe top 200, but I can name a lot of guys in Japan, and I'm sure there's a lot more on this list who I would say should be much higher. That one is a weird one to me. So let me ask you, at number 190, Barry, Barry Rose, we talked about. Ernie Ladd, we talked about Ken Patera, Kevin Sullivan, we talked about some of the other guys on this list. Does Shane Douglas belong ahead of them? Because he's at number 190. What say you? I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say, but Carl Stern, good thing you're about a foot taller and 100 pounds heavier than you <laughs> kick my ass, because I'd be ripping you a new one right now. Shane Douglas, absolutely not. Shane Douglas, I hear he's a great guy, too. Yes. Uh, Shane uh, from what I understand, completely different than his his wrestling persona, by the way. Yeah, I think a lot of people that have met him always say what a wonderful guy he is. Shane Douglas does not deserve to be in the uh, the top two hundred of all time in the in the world for professional wrestlers. That is a very biased list at this point. Again, I yeah, I want to call out Carl, but I still want to live, so I'll be careful. Uh, you know, Shane 
I always remember him with that that horrible gimmick with uh, Johnny Ace. What was it? The uh, the guys who wrote the oh, skit. Oh, dudes with attitude. The dudes, yeah, the the dudes, yeah, they were uh, uh, the dynamic. Dynamic dudes, thank dynamic you. Dynamic, appreciate that. Who was dudes with attitudes, Lou? What's that? That that was. Uh, oh, that was the guys in WCW. Sting. Yeah, yeah, Sting, Paul Orndorff, Junkyard right Dog, PN News. Oh, or yeah. no, not PN News, but yeah. That gimmick was so horrible it uh it led to a, a young wrestling fan uh uh starting a, a series of articles uh, called uh, the booking with Bowden but I digress. Wow. Uh, so anyway, uh yeah, oh no, that's how horrible that gimmick was. Getting back to Shane Douglas though, I will give credit where it's due. He got past that whole uh dynamic dudes thing which was just a an absolute crippling gimmick. He had a good uh, tag team with Ricky Steamboat for a while. I know they had some uh, some really high-level tag team matches the early part of the 90s, uh, if I recall correctly. He was part of uh, one of my top 100 of the 80s match, the, uh, the Battle of New Orleans, with uh, Eddie Gilbert, Terry Taylor, uh, Sting, Chris Adams, because I think originally Shane Douglas was the tag team partner of, uh, of Sting, and then uh, I think Shane Douglas got hurt, and that's when Chris Adams came into the equation. So he he wasn't a guy that did nothing, uh, you know. He I think he was kind of treading water, and then the you know around what was it ninety three ninety four, uh, he becomes uh, you know uh, the franchise Shane Douglas and uh, threw the NWA belt down uh, and became one of the uh, absolute central characters in the ECW during its run. Uh, so he got a lot of notoriety for that. Uh, and became uh, a big enough deal where he was signed to the WWE. Uh, then, of course, there were backstage problems with the guys in the click, uh, and he came back uh, to ECW. Not so sure that he was as big a deal upon his return uh, as he had been before he left. I-, I think he has a spot somewhere. I don't know that it's 190, though. You know, I, I mean, I I give him his due. He had a, a nice run, a nice career. Again, another guy that uh, was a school teacher. I think I, I don't know if before or after his career, but uh, putting him ahead of guys like Patera uh, and Ernie Ladd, uh, I say no, Bear. No, definitely not to. And and he, you know, let let's look. He, ECW. He was the guy that essentially revolutionized and put ECW on the map with throwing down the NWA title and all that. Had a good run in WCW as part of tag team Steamboat, Dustin Rhodes, maybe I don't, I forget who the other, but I know with Steamboat never had a, a great run in the Federation. I think he was Dean Douglas for a very short time, but nothing ever happened. I don't think his career based off of what was accomplished, puts him in the top 200. And again, this is not a criticism. This is being very objective. I just, even if he's a favorite, and I know he's a favorite of a lot of people, I just don't see it. You know, and I think one of the things that I think is a fair point to make about Shane Douglas, because Shane Douglas got himself over in ECW because he cut really good promos. But let's also be honest in the fact that a lot of those promos Paulie gave him time that he would not have been given on a stage like WCW or WWF. I mean, some of his promos were like 10 and 15 minutes long, and you right. just were not going to be getting that sort of time link to get yourself over as a character, whether it be a heel or a babyface, in a national promotion, but in a, I hate to use this expression, in a niche promotion like ECW was, because it really was kind of a niche promotion. Paulie very correctly and intelligently Gave Shane time to get the character over. He got over like a million bucks within that promotion. 
But when he goes national as Dean Douglas or Shane Douglas, uh, you know, wherever he went, you're not going to get that kind of time to cut a promo to get your character established. Uh, so maybe that played a part in why Shane Douglas got over so effectively in ECW. What do you think? Yeah, look, it was right time, right? And Shane did a great job. I don't want to take anything yeah. away. My God, he was fantastic in the role. Sometimes magic happens and it's created. Could he have taken that same concept, that same fervor that surrounded that and brought that to a national stage? That I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. Barry, you know, it's been a hot minute since we've done a little Florida man. Oh. So I like to always, uh, you know, bring the goods here. So Barry Rose, our first Florida man. Sorry, by the way, you ready, of course? Naturally. Let's do it. Yeah. So uh, the headline reads, note to self, don't wear your GPS monitor for an evening of carjacking. <laughs> Police searching for the culprits allegedly involved in a string of car burglaries, easy for me to say, were able to nab one suspect who was wearing a GPS ankle monitor during the heist. Joshua Reed, 19, already out on bond for Grand Theft Auto in one county with a pending case in another county, was brought before a uh, county court judge for his alleged connection to a car heist in another county, all because he's wearing an auto ankle monitor. He, he had three different counties involved in this, Barry. We were able to track this guy who's responsible for 14 cases, uh, Sergeant Fernando Bosch of the police department said, Barry Rose, is this a Florida man or not? You can say the guy's last, the, the detective's last name is Bosch? Bosch. He's not Harry Bosch. It's his wow. brother, Fernando. All right. Oh, this, I mean. You know, if his name was Harry Bosch, boy, would we have a hell of a this story This would here. be, yeah, this would be the greatest show ever. I, oh, man, which way to go with this one? Certainly could be, right? But uh, there are several. Could be, might be, ought to be. I'm going to say, I'm going to I'm gonna venture on this one. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say did not take place in Florida, but I don't know where. Not only are you wrong, Barry Rose. Darn it. You are really wrong because what I did not mention was he was out on bond for grand theft in Broward County. That's for for all you non-residents. He had a pending case in Palm Beach County, and he was brought before a judge in Miami-Dade County. It's the big South Florida trifecta. Barry Rose, you have to be impressed. This is, I mean, this might be, he might be the definitive Florida man facing charges in all the counties. This might be like the guy. This, what was the movie I'm trying to think? Uh, oh, it was uh, Ruthless People where the uh, detective uh, comments, he says, we may very well be looking at the stupidest man on the face of God's earth. Uh, anyway, next one. <clears throat> Barry Rose, you ready? Uh, no, but yeah, go for it. Woman pulled from storm drain for the third time in two years. <laughs> All right, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to guess right away. Just got to right off the bat with the head. It's actually there. Delray Beach. So that was a good <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yes. uh, the story says Delray Beach Police Department uh, said at around 12 p.m., officers and firefighters dude. responded to a call after a, woman, a witness said someone was possibly in distress while swimming in the canal near Lindell Boulevard. Wow. When officers arrived, they located the woman later identified as Lindsay Kennedy. They asked her if she needed assistance, but she ignored them and climbed into a storm drain pipe. Because what could possibly go wrong? Kennedy refused to come out of the pipe and began to crawl further inside. The pipe crossed under Lindell Boulevard. Firefighters said they had to contain her between two sections of the pipe. Delray Beach Fire Rescue Special Operations team member used a ladder and a rescue harness to get her out. Did Gage and DeSoto ever encounter this kind of 
That's a really old school reference there. That is. Rampart! Rampart! (laughs) Rampart! Dayton D5W, Barry. (laughs) Oh. Uh, Okay, Barry. Last one is a, is a threesome, uh, threesome, uh, trifecta here. Barry Rose. Yes. Man breaks into a Joe's crab shack, defecates on the floor. That's the headline. Man defecated on the floor of a restaurant after breaking in an early Saturday morning and stealing out, go figure, alcohol and other items. <laughs> the police department needs help identifying the suspect. According to police, around 2 a.m. on Saturday, the suspect crawled through a small window at Joe's Crab Shack. Uh, and the suspect stole various items, including alcohol, defecated on the floor of the restaurant before leaving. Police are still searching Barry Rose, Florida man or not. <sighs> Some. Going this now, if this is, had been an Ethiopian restaurant, that's all I'm going to say. This would have been perhaps an early candidate for story of the year, but instead it's Joe's Crab Shack. Hey, you ever try your uh, Joe's Crab Shack there, by the way? Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been, and there's somebody, I, I forget who it was, but somebody posted in our group at one point, maybe a year ago, I don't know, but they loved it. I've been to Joe's twice, and I got to tell you, it's uh, a hipper red lobster. At least in my opinion, I didn't, I don't get it, but, uh, yeah, I'm not a fan. But with it, they are huge in the state of Florida, which I do know. I am going to say the answer is yes. This also took place in Florida. Fort Myers, Barry. Woo! And I'm just going to say that, uh, according to the story, I'm not going to call out a member of the brothership, but, uh, I think the story mentioned something about he was wearing a Tampa Bay Bucks jersey with a kind of a oversized floppy hat and uh, may have had a handlebar mustache. Oh, we know I him. Think you know, I think you know who I'm talking about. Sure. I want to know where Ben James was when this story took place. Anyway, three for three on the Florida Man stories. Barry, congratulations. couple notes of interest that I want to talk about, Barry. <clears throat> so the daughter uh, and the son-in-law uh, went out to uh, the old Vegas, as I mentioned last episode, uh, uh, still the controversial uh, in-and-out restaurant opinions aside. She uh, was taking pictures of all the different restaurants she went to, and I thought she made a comment that uh, you would appreciate because it really made me feel good. She sends me a text and says, you know, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate when I was growing up, you made a point of telling me not to only go to chain restaurants to seek out non-chain restaurants because that's what we've been doing in Vegas and we've really enjoyed our food experience. Barry, is that the kind of thing that makes you proud as a parent? It does too. And I got to say, and, and here's, I, and I'm also proud of your daughter because finding a non-chain restaurant in Vegas is probably, <laughs> that's like needle in a haystack on that shit. So I, uh, so kudos to them, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, and we should at some point, Jeff, we should discuss one of those, the the burger list you sent me, uh, because I I read that controversial opinion. I read it start to finish, and then I actually read it to somebody else, and I was like, "Do you believe this? This is heresy right here." But yeah, so that that's good. Well, look, you're right too. If you're gonna chain restaurants, can offer you something. If depending on what you're looking for, but in most cases, the prices you're paying at chain restaurants, you can get just as good, if not better food from a local merchant. And you're also supporting the local economy. Absolutely. So I, yeah, so I'm a big fan on that. Look, you, you want, you want in and out, you know, you're, you're going to go to in and out. Who doesn't want in and out? Well, it's well uh, yeah, exactly. But, uh, 
but you know, there are certain Portillo's, which we, you know, I love Portillo's, right? Some people don't. I love Portillo's. The same token, there's no local Italian beef place near me that I can go to. But when I go for pizza, I'm not going to a chain. I stopped going to Anthony's when they sold it because the quality went down, but I, I'm, I get, you know, most of my meals do come from independent restaurants. So that is great advice. And everyone listening, if you have children, tonight's the night. This episode being released, sit down with your children, tell them you need to talk to them. Tell them how important to avoid the chains and go to those mom and pop restaurants truly is. Tonight's the night, also a very popular Rod Stewart song that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But since you used that expression, I thought I'd uh, you know, squeeze uh, a Rod Stewart. Yeah, exactly. So also food-related, Barry, Uh-oh. I want to express to you the joy I felt. Almost, I almost shed a tear, Barry. Whippy Dad? It was close. Okay. Mrs. Bowder and I were doing the old grocery shopping the other night. And as we were passing the ice cream aisle, Barry Rose. Oh. Let me just ask you, if you're, if you're going to get the uh, – I'm not talking about going to Dairy Queen or Cold Stone. But if you're going uh, in your uh, local grocery uh, freezer section and you're going to get some ice cream, whether uh, – not the brand, just the flavor, what, what are you getting? You're getting uh, butter pecan. You're getting cookies <laughs> and cream. What are you getting? And don't come up with the mango fucking shit or apple. Oh, I love that. Give me yeah. a different – like a a, 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 a flavor that – is known to most people that you really enjoy because I've got one for you. So if I, it's, it's usually one of two. If I am sharing with Ozzy, I would get strawberry. Okay. Uh, if I am just being selfish, a selfish prick on my own, I am getting brownie batter ice cream with brownie chunks and the brownie batter swirls. That's where I'm going. Okay. So what happened uh to us the other night was we were walking. Don't give me that mango shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I remember because we were talking about our favorite flavors. And you come up with <laughs> like mango stuff. That's awesome. I don't know. Some uh, flavor found in one city in the country. Which was true, though. I think that was true, yes. So we're walking through, and Mrs. Bowdrin looks over in the ice cream section and goes, Oh, my God, there it is. And I'm like, what, 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 what? And there on this, on the shelf for selection is Bluebell's 10 Roof Sunday. Now, Barry Rose, tell me why this was an incredible sight to me. Why is it that 10 Roof Sunday made by the Bluebell Ice Cream Company or whatever their name is? Why has that not been available? And why was it such a joyous occasion that I saw that? Do you know the answer to that question? I believe that I do. Uh, so Bluebell ice cream, which is, it's actually, it's an, essentially in a smaller independent ice cream. It, and, and look, it's a big company. It's just not Haagen-Dazs or Ben and Jerry's, but they, they produce a really high quality product. And I think the difference is the level of cream that goes in the ice cream. And Bluebell was great. However, there was a period, I don't forget the time frame on that, where there was a massive outbreak of food poisoning. I think it was listeria or salmonella, and it wound up closing, uh, or at least, and I guess not closing permanently, but at least suspending all operations. And there was a period of time that you could not get Bluebell ice cream. Uh, I'm assuming that it's now back. And, and would I be correct in what I would uh, No, you're actually wrong. Uh, oh! So the reason I said uh, that this was an amazing thing is because Bluebell, for the uninitiated was the company that, for whatever reason, was chosen by some 
fuck stick out there about a year and a half, two years ago. Do you remember the viral video that was posted, uh, Barry? Oh, yes. Yes, of the asshole woman who decided to open up a carton of Bluebell, and it was 10 roof fucking Sunday. That's right. And she licked the ice cream, then uh, put the cap back on and put it back on the shelf, posted the video because she's so fucking hilarious. And this, of course, caused Bluebell to remove all 10 Roof Sundays from shelves. And stock in Bluebell took a massive hit. And Bluebell and Publix used to get eh, probably like uh, four or five, maybe even six shelves for their uh, different flavors. They went down to like two. So this this video that this woman posted cost this, con- uh, this company millions of dollars. It has to be. So... I don't know why, what happened, because we would ask about, you know, because it's my right. favorite flavor. Uh, hey, any chances of Kim's looking up on Google? No, they've stopped making it all together. They've scaled back their operations because the company was so impacted by this video. And I shouldn't say this one video. There were other people doing it, too, because, of course, we're such a tag-along fucking society that once one person does it, everybody else has to do it because it's so fucking hilarious. Now, the return of Ten Roof Sunday. First of all, Barry, have you ever had Ten Roof Sunday ice cream? I haven't actually, Jeff, as we're saying this, I actually Googled Bluebell Listeria outbreak from 2019. Three people died and at least 10 more severely uh, impacted by that. Those so, deaths are important, but not as important as having my 10 roof Sunday. Right. Or, or a, a woman licking. But how do you do that, though? Think about that for a minute. You're running a business and, and you're pulling tin roof Sunday ice cream off. And you're costing the company what's potentially millions of dollars. Is that an overreaction to one video of a woman licking the inside of the, I don't know. Is it an overreaction or no? I don't know, but I hope if the woman was identified, I sure hope the good attorneys at Bluebell sued her fucking ass off because, you know, the uh, outbreak of Listeria, I, of course, was being humorous. Of course, that's uh, serious, certainly with the deaths and the sicknesses and stuff like that. But I think I want to say this happened before the Listeria. So, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a real kick in the crotch for the company because they were an extremely popular brand of ice cream. And uh, they uh, they took a big hit from this. So I'm glad Ten Roof Sunday's back. I have Heck to tell yeah. you. How was I'm, it, by the way? How oh, was it? Fucking delicious. I, I actually... I bought two cartons. I won't lie. There you go. There goes my waistline. Anyway, speaking of food, Barry, yet a third related food reference. Barry Rose, you and I heard a story, and we had been uh, talking about that we wanted to uh, go further in depth in this story. Well, good news. You can now go on to Netflix and find out about the story, Barry. Don't give me any spoilers because I'm only one episode in on this three-part story about the McDonald's hoax. The movie or the series is called Don't Answer the Phone. Holy shit, Barry. This story is amazing. And I say amazing in a completely horrifying way. I, uh, I spent a couple weeks back. I spent about four days and I think I just watched all Netflix programming and I, uh, it, it, it's called Don't Pick Up the Phone, as you said. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll check it out. But I don't know, you know, and I was like, let me check it out. I got to be honest with you. When I sure. saw the title, I didn't realize it was this story that you and I had talked about. Because on another non-Arcadian podcast, I had heard the story about this uh, this scandal 
and everything that happened. Real quick before I throw it back to Barry, let me just tell you what happened. So the way the story initially broke was there was a McDonald's, I want to say somewhere in Kentucky, like a small town in Kentucky. Yeah, I believe you're right. And what happened was the manager is called one night. Uh, and the person on the phone says, yeah, this is Bob Smith. I'm calling from corporate. Uh, no, no, it wasn't that. It was I'm Bob Smith calling from the police department. We've had a report that one of your employees has been stealing from you. You need to call the employee into the office. They called this employee into the office. It's a young girl, a teenager, and she's accused of stealing. You know, she, of course, says, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do any of this. And the police says, well, uh, we didn't tell you, but we'd had a complaint from corporate about, you know, theft among employees. So we had installed cameras in the restaurant. And so we know that you've been stealing. So they then tell the manager, who's a female, that you need to search this employee, have them, uh, you know, disrobe. So the woman has the employee, the teenage employee, disrobe. I wish I could tell you this is all bullshit, by the way. It's complete fucking shoot. They have the, she has the woman, uh, has the young girl, start disrobing to prove that she's not like hiding something in her bra, hiding something in her panties. And it gets fucking worse, Barry. It is. And we, and I don't want to, again, no spoilers. So I don't want, but it gets worse. And, and as you'll see in coming episodes, this happened at other, other fast food locations, similar results in some ways. I, I did watch, it's only three episodes. The first two are, so disturbing. Like right now we're talking about it and I actually have my hand over my forehead. <laughs> like I'm just like in pain. This is arguably one of the most disturbing stories. And there is a turn that takes place. And I believe she was 17 when this occurred, Jeff. Well, let's put it this way. There were more than one person victimized by this. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the guy apparently, I thought this was a story that was sort of uh, just uh, based on this one area. Apparently, this was like a national thing that this person would do where they would call. And what the the typical M.O. was, he would call a fast food restaurant in a small town. Uh, and the inference, at least from the first episode, was oh, maybe these aren't people that are extremely. What's the word I'm looking for, Barry? Right. Uh, right. No, I don't even necessarily say culture. Culture. They're not worldly. Worldly is probably a bit. They, they don't have a lot of street smarts to them. Okay. Okay. You know, you you call this uh, place, uh, let's just say in uh, uh, Barry Rose's old neighborhood uh, in Florida, and maybe they're a little. Uh, they catch on a little bit quicker. Uh, but these people, small town people, doesn't mean they're bad people. They're just small town, uh, not extremely worldly, and they get completely caught up in the line of bullshit that this guy is giving them, and. You think originally that it's just one town and then all of a sudden, like the, the dots start getting connected. Uh, you know, he's doing this up in Massachusetts and all other parts of the country. Yeah. And it's a horrifying story about what these people are essentially talked into doing because they have a person on the phone that is a quote unquote authority figure and they completely buy the line of bullshit. And I, th- I remember when I first heard this story, Barry, I think what I said to you was you, you, you watch the story and all of a sudden you're like, you know, this reminds me of you hear the horror stories about how the people in Germany, uh, like in the uh, early 30s, bought into Hitler's bullshit and like the like the mass hypnosis that happened in Germany. And, you know, the people that buy into this guy's bullshit on the phone and start doing whatever the guy wants to, wants them to do. It's crazy. It, it is. And it becomes, uh, you know, there's 
there's body cavity searches that takes place. I don't want to spoil this, but I will tell you uh, at the end of this documentary, you will have a complete disdain for uh, executives at McDonald's and the lawyers who handled this case. And there is a real profound sadness for one of the victims, which you'll also see, because th- this is not a happy ending uh in a sense, when this thing's over, you're not up running around and, you know, you're, this is depressing in a lot of ways. There were lives that have been destroyed by this. And, uh, I saw this and of course I, I wrapped up around 1130 at night and then I sit in bed and go, fuck, why did I just watch this? Right. But with it, this may be the most compelling doc I've seen in a long time. Highly recommended. Yeah, and speaking of that, you know, uh, we had talked, uh, I believe it was, uh, our Patreon episode, uh, a while back, Barry. You and I had been joined by, uh, my cousin Lydia, who lives yes. in a small town in South Carolina about the dreaded Murdoch family, uh, murders that took place in Hampton, South Carolina. Well, apparently the case is set to go to trial this week as we speak. Uh, jury selection begins and Wow, there, this is like the proverbial onion getting unraveled, Barry. Are you familiar with the updates on the Murdoch, uh, trial? Yeah, so I've been staying right on top of it. And I think, I think by having, uh, having Lydia with us, you know, there is that personal connection of somebody that's actually living in that town. I, I sent you a link a few days ago and, uh, it was basically just recapping what had taken place and the fact that it was going to trial. And then you had mentioned about the Netflix show, but then I, I quickly Googled and I saw that there's a show on HBO, some sort of documentary on this that's already out there. This is a, uh, this is an, I mean, if, if what he is accused of which is essentially killing uh, his wife and his son. And and you, then you read how he killed the son. I want to say it was like five shots to the head or something, whatever it is. It, this is just, uh, it's horrific. And he deserves to go away for the rest of his life. Does South Carolina have the death penalty? And I think that they do. Uh, I really don't know, to be honest with you. That's, yeah. a, that's a very fair question. Yeah. My my dog is chewing on my chair leg. I hear this noise Uh-oh. in the background. I'm like, what the hell is Snap doing? He's chewing. How old is Snap? Chair. Snap is a proud two year old boy now. He uh, celebrated his birthday on uh, Christmas. Happy birthday, Snap! Yeah, he's a good boy. Uh, so anyway, uh, Barry Rose, how about we do a little match of the week now? Let's talk about the Briscoes versus FTR dog collar match. Of course, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, the tragic passing, uh, recently of Jay Briscoe in a, uh, car accident, which, oh my God, just horrifying. Uh, and the injury suffered by his two daughters, yeah. uh, and just awful. But let's talk about this match, Barry, the match that took place this past year, dog, double dog collar between the Briscoes and FTR. This was one fucking hellacious brawl, Barry. Yeah, this is our kind of match too, Jeff, because the, when I'm watching this, the first thing that is it that pops in my head, we're back in the territories in a sense. Like this is not, this is not your typical wrestling match. And you've got two teams and rest in peace, Jay Briscoe, but the Briscoe brothers and Mark and Jay, they really were a really great team. And, uh, these guys and they, they had held ROH, uh, together 
in the tag team division for years. Jay White was also a uh, Jay White. Jay Briscoe was also a very credible ROH World Heavyweight Champion. Definitely strong worker. Uh, and then you take FTR. And I mean, for all of the, the comments that are out there on social media, the truth is the last year for these guys holding titles in three different countries and, and just, you know, having great matches, put these, these two teams together. And it's like a dream. Add in this whole dog collar aspect, and it's a double dog collar match. You know that you're going to get a lot of blood, a lot of juice, but it's going to be legit juice. It's not going to be, you know, they're they're hitting each other with chains, right? So you're going to believe it. This match, though, uh, what I think the strength of this match, too, is the length. I remember watching dog collar matches or chain matches back in the day, and they were usually wrapped up fairly quick, right? This, this seems to go on for about 20 or 25 minutes, an epic match. And there are some great spots right here. I would say this is maybe one of the best best gimmick matches I've seen in years. Like, I, I can't even... I can't even think of a better gimmick match that I've seen over the last few years, but spectacular start to finish. And so appreciative that it was made available and uh, you were able to send me the link so I could see it. Yeah, uh, I did not mention, I apologize. Uh, this is December 10th, uh, 2022. It was from uh ring of honors final battle card. And, you know, I gotta be honest with you. There are some gimmicks that, uh, you know, like as far as a, a street fight, Texas death match, whatever that I really enjoy. I have not always been a fan of the, uh, the dog collar matches. And I'll, I'll tell you why not because, you know, uh, the blood or anything like that. It's sort of because of the limitations that come when you have the guys like, you know, attached at the neck with the dog collar, uh, whatever it, it it's like, you know, we, we've mentioned before, Barry, that uh, a barbed wire match. It just has so many limitations unless you want to see guys just go out there and basically get their bodies chewed up, you know. But this one, while there is, uh, there are moves that are involved and intrinsic with the, the chain and the, you know, the chain being used, there's also, uh, there isn't the limitations that I would have expected in all four guys, you know, like, oh my God, they just, totally fucking uh you know work their asses off they're putting you know they're putting on a hellacious match there is tons of blood barry can you remember a match that's had this much blood a, a relatively high profile match let's just let's just say that has this much blood recently well you know there that ruby soho match on AEW True. Rampage, and that was just her i think or somebody but i mean she was a mess but you know what but here was the difference in this match it, it works like that. The context, I, th- I thought the Ruby and while I give her credit, what, et cetera, it, I, it was overboard for me. I, I was just too much. And, uh, but this match, you know, this is what it's supposed to be. So juice fest for sure, Jeff. Yeah. And you know, the, uh, the match, uh, has a couple of, there was a, there was one a moment where, uh, I think it was Dax was trying to wrap the chain around his head to do yes. a flying head, but and it kept slipping off. You know? yeah. And, and you got to give him credit because he didn't stop. There was like no, two he minutes kept there. He it, kept but trying. It was almost yeah. like it got to the point where like, ah, fuck it. I'll just, you know, exactly do it. But, uh, and then the finishing spot is, you know, so innovative where, uh, Jay took the, uh, the chain and wrapped it around Dax's mouth and he's pulling back on it. And Cash is trying to roll in the uh, ring to save his partner while Mark is holding on to Cash. And then, uh, eventually, uh, spoiler alert, uh, you know, oh. Dax ends up ta- tapping out to Jay. And so the Briscoes win the match. An incredible finish, an incredible match. So let me just say this as, as I was, uh, you know, watching this, 
I reached out to uh, some friends and I said, you know, uh, I, I know that uh, I, I've been reading up some stuff on the Briscoes. They've been around for like 20 years, uh, give or take a, a few years. And I said, you know, I remember seeing them at an I think it was an MLW show in South Florida. I don't know if it was at uh, Florida Atlantic or another, uh, you know, maybe another facility, but at their auditorium uh, where they were out there. And it was like. Yeah, wow, these guys are, uh, this is like 15 years ago and I'm going, wow, these guys are, are good, man. They've got a real future. And I don't know what it is. We've never done a Briscoe Brothers match on this uh, show before. And I started wondering whether or not, I know this is going to sound very strange, whether or not part of the reason I didn't get into them was because I felt like using the name Briscoe Brothers is kind of like sacrilegious, Barry. You know? Yeah, so I, I here's the funny thing. I didn't until Jay passed away. I had no idea what their legit names were. I had never looked, so I I somehow assumed it was really Briscoe, and it's spelled differently. There's an E after the O, unlike Jack and Jerry. So I I don't know. Uh, I don't understand the logic as to why they took the name the Briscoe Brothers. I can only assume, but uh, yeah, yeah. But I I get what you're saying. And, and I saw something uh, posted on, uh, I think it was on Twitter or something like that. I think Jerry Briscoe was commenting about them. And he said, you know, he thought they were a really good team. And he remembered when they first started breaking nationals when his brother Jack was still alive. And I guess Jerry mentioned something about them to Jack. And Jack was not mad, but Jack was like a little disappointed, I guess would be a better way of putting sure. it, that they hadn't reached out to either Jack or Jerry to basically get their blessing, you know, uh, you know, hey, we're going to be uh, called the brisk, you know, that kind of thing. You're supposed uh, to do that. Yeah, it's a very old school mentality, yeah. I know. But uh, there was there was that. So I have not seen a lot of Briscoe Brothers stuff. Uh, it's not a case I haven't seen any. I just haven't seen a lot. But wow, Barry, these guys, what a super tag team, super gimmick. This match is absolutely incredible. And, you know, I feel like we've been cheated that this guy did not get a run nationally. I know there's a story out there about why they didn't. Get, and the fact that uh, that the corporate heads decided that they wanted to put the kibosh on AEW doing some sort of tribute to Jay is really pretty sad to me, Barry. Yeah, well, it didn't stop people from laying the blame squarely on the shoulders of Tony Khan. Of course, uh, of course. Which you know, and you try to explain it, and you just then you walk away and go, "What am I doing? What? Just let yeah. people believe what they want." I'll tell you, with all of the negativity and bullshit that seems to permeate off of social media, and I got even today, I walked away. I'm like, man, I just can't, I can't listen to these people. It seems like the entire wrestling community, regardless of what federation or organization, everyone rallied around his family. Yes, and, and that was very nice to see that uh, donations were coming in. Far um, surpassing whatever had been asked for. Yes, for and, and that's very nice to see that, that people are uh, that generous. Uh, and, you know, kind of I, I read the story, uh, his uh, obituary in The Observer, uh, incredibly detailed and incredible uh, all the comments that people posted, uh, not just the AEW people, people from the WWE that had known him uh, coming up. A very nice, poignant words from Adam Cole about the impact that Jay Briscoe had on a young Adam Cole. I thought that was very nice, Barry. Uh, so uh, just a, a huge, huge tragedy, not only to to the you know to the wrestling world and wrestling fans. Who cares? Uh, more importantly, to uh, Jay Briscoe, Jasmine Pugh's family. That's the real tragedy, and what happened to his daughters. Uh, is just uh, heartbreaking, and we only can hope that the the two young girls return to full health 
uh, because, you know, besides having to deal with the, the death of their father, yeah. uh, you know, th- they're having to deal with their own physical issues, and it's just really tragic. We'll post a link to this match from uh, December 10th of last year from a final battle in Ring of Honor as the Briscoes take on FDR in a dog collar match. An absolutely amazing, amazing match. I'm just going to end with this, Barry. And I did something that I almost never do. When I decide what the match of the week is, and I, before I send it to you uh, and say, okay, here's your match of the week, and, you know, I give you an opportunity to, after I'd done that, I actually sent this match to two people that are in our group. And I said, this is an amazing fucking match. You guys got to watch this. And uh, that's something I never do. That's how good I thought this match was. I really hope once I post a link to it in the group, if you have not yet seen it, this is one hellacious kick-ass brawl, old-school fucking wrestling. Check it out. All right, Barry, as we start the old go-home for the uh, show this particular week, I forgot to mention, posted some pictures online. Don't know if you saw it. Had the chance to check out some German food the other day, Barry. Did you Uh, see those photos? I did see those photos, absolutely. We had just discussed German food, too. Yes. Now, are you uh, a fan of German food at all? Love German food. Absolutely. Uh, I actually had the goulash, and I got it, and I was like, I'm taking a little step out on the ledge here. Yeah. I got to tell you, absolutely amazing. It was tremendous, uh, and I uh, couldn't have been happier. This uh, little small restaurant that's basically built uh, in our area, uh, it was built in a house. They turned a house, converted it into a restaurant. Uh, and it is really amazing food. Good, good stuff. Also want to mention a couple things before we go. Mark Hurtweck and his daughter, Allie, I don't know if you saw the pictures, Barry, volunteered this weekend at an animal shelter. Barry Rose, join with me. Round of applause for Mark and his daughter, Allie. Way to go. Very happy with that. And also, last thing before we go, Barry Rose, did you see the picture of Roy Lucier's wedding and the lucha theme to the wedding. I did. So you pointed this out and you said, have you seen these? And I said, no. And then I immediately went and checked and it looks like Sabu was there. And then there was a masked guy, a uh, heavy metal or some metal. Black metal, I think. Black is metal. And, uh, yeah. Who carried Roy into like the, the wedding yeah. ceremony yeah. on yeah. his and shoulder. The, what's his name? Tonga Kid was there. I think lives close by. Uh, all I can say is Roy, the woman you married. I don't know what her name is. Rough up my head. Maybe Michelle. 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 Wow, you you hooked a winner there, my man. Because yes. I can imagine uh, going to my wife before we got married. Oh, honey, let's ha- let's make it a wrestling themed wedding. I don't see that going over very well. So, Roy and Michelle, congratulations to both of you uh, on your uh, your your wedding day. And uh, I hope your life together is as much fun as it looked like your wedding and your reception uh, were. On that note, I will remind you that Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Still missing my boy, Gunny Barry. Uh, love him and miss him every day. For my co-host, Barry Rose, our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, this has been Breaking Cafe Bubba with Bowdrin and Barry. Check out the match of the week. You're not going to be disappointed. Take it home. Dude.